Well, please turn with me in your Bible to the Gospel according to Mark. We are continuing our series in the Gospel, turning our, our attention this morning to chapter 9, verse 30. It's the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 30. Please join me in praying for God's blessing on our time together. Well, Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for the gift of your church. We thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you that we can come together and sing songs together and greet one another and, and enjoy the gift of fellowship. We thank you that we get to enjoy the gift of, of various servants in, in their gifting, benefiting, Father. And in particular, Father, we thank you for your self-revelation. We thank you for your word, Lord, that that governs our lives, that guides our songs, and that speaks to our souls. So, Father, I pray this morning that you would speak afresh to our hearts now. We need you, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see wondrous things in your Word. Not primarily that we might grow in new information, but that we might grow by spiritual transformation. So please do your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please follow along now as I read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, starting in verse 30. This is God's glorious, holy word. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. May the Lord bless the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Well, in 1964, after defeating Sonny Liston for the first time, Muhammad Ali delivered a speech that has lived on in the hearts and in the minds of sports fans for decades. He said, I want everyone to bear witness. I am the greatest. 
I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face, and I upset Sonny List, and I, I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I showed the world. I shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me. I am the greatest. I can't be beat. Ali was an exciting fighter to watch and certainly has gone down as one of the best boxers in the history of the sport. Other sports have their own great ones. Michael Jordan, of course, is famous likewise to his claim to be the greatest of his sport. We could go down the list of other athletes and other famous people who have claims to greatness. But that desire for greatness is not unique to athletes. It's not unique to politicians or actors. Or It's something that's inside of us all, isn't it? Every one of us is born with a desire for significance. We want our lives to count. We want to be personally fulfilled. We want to be great. We, if we can't be great, we at least want to be seen as great. We want recognition. And the disciples who followed Jesus had this desire inside them, and none of us are immune. It affects us all. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, James Edwards says, At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. Jesus does not exactly repudiate prominence and greatness, but He redefines them. The challenge is to be great in things that matter to God. And that's what this passage is addressing this morning. We have a wrong view of what constitutes greatness in the eyes of the Lord. Our view of greatness needs to be redefined. This passage doesn't only diagnose the problem, it also carries with it a message that will bring immediate application into your life and mine today. The Lord wants to free us from an enslavement with the ways of the world and the grip of idolatry that seeks to wreak havoc in your fellowship with Jesus and, and in the church. The Lord offers hope for us even as He places a claim upon our lives. He wants to show us another way, in fact, the only true path to greatness. And you will have opportunities to apply this just this afternoon. Here the Lord wants to redefine what greatness is and help us to reflect the greatness of Jesus in the way that we live our lives in service of one another. To state that more simply, what we need to understand is that the path of greatness is the path of serving. The path of greatness is the path of serving. And we're going to break up our text this morning into, into two parts. We're just following the clear breaks in this passage. So verses 30 to 32, the picture of true greatness. Verses 33 to 37, the path of greatness. So let's start in verse 30, the picture of greatness. 
Remember the context here, Jesus and his disciples, he has just healed a boy with an unclean spirit and emphasized the priority of prayer. Jesus leads his disciples on, and in verse 30, it says that they pass through Galilee. Now, you know the town of Galilee. This is where Jesus once lived. This was once his home, but now he simply passes through without even stopping. It sets an ominous tone. He is now setting his face toward Jerusalem. He was on a mission. He had a purpose to fulfill. And the text says that Jesus didn't want anyone to know. He wanted privacy. He was teaching his disciples. He was modeling ministry. He was shaping their understanding of what life and ministry in the kingdom of God was like. And he is increasingly bringing his purpose more and more into focus for them. The disciples were only too eager to get alone with them. Continually, you see them trying to dispel the crowds, trying to get some time alone with him. Three of them had just gone with him to the Mount of Transfiguration, and they all knew something was different. Something had changed. They were seeing the power of Christ. They were beginning to understand the authority that Jesus wielded. You can imagine they were recalling how the Scriptures spoke of the one to come who would, in the words of Psalm chapter 2, break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So they may be wondering, is, is it now time for that? Are they about to see Jesus come into His power and rule the world? Look at verse 31. Jesus has them alone, and He says to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Startling words. Not what they expected. And the text says, they did not understand. And they were afraid to ask for an explanation. This is the second time that Jesus has foretold His suffering and His death and His resurrection. Just in back, back in chapter 8 was the first time, and after Jesus told them plainly, Peter questioned it. He didn't just question it, he rebuked Jesus. May it not be. And Jesus rebukes Peter. As so you can understand now why these disciples were afraid to ask For Jesus to emphasize this mission so specifically, while He has the disciples alone together, He was trying to communicate to them the most essential aspect of why He came. He wanted them to get it. Like a gentle father, He, he wanted to prepare them. He didn't want them to be caught off guard. He didn't want them to be unprepared. He wanted them to know ahead of time so they could be ready for it. And beyond that... He wanted the nature of His mission to shape their mission as well as ours. 
But this was not the mission of the Messiah that they were anticipating. They knew that the Messiah was coming to rule and to reign, not to suffer in weakness and to die. That was their understanding. But Jesus is undaunted. He speaks plainly to them. He wanted them to know that this wasn't going to happen by chance. This wasn't some unforeseen, unanticipated mistake. It was no accident. Rather, this would all be part of His unfolding plan. He would be delivered into the hands of men. And when you read that word, delivered, who is doing the delivering? The Greek word for delivered is in the passive voice, concealing its subject. Likely, this is what they call the divine passive, meaning it's a reference to God Himself. In his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, William Lane writes, after the betrayal by Judas and Jesus' arrest, it would be natural to associate the terminology of handing over with this act of treachery. The background of the term in Scripture, however, indicates that the thought is more profound. Jesus will be delivered into the hands of men by God. And what takes place on the level of historical occurrence has ultimate significance because it centers in the eschatological action of God. Here's the point. God, the Father, is handing His Son over to die. God, the Father, is delivering His Son into the hands of men to suffer and to die on a cross and thus fulfilling the promise of the coming servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, who will suffer and die for the sins of the people. God, the Father, sent His Son to die on the cross for you and for me, paying the penalty of our sin, paying the debt that we owe once for all. That's what we see here. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but, remember what it says? But delivered, but gave Him up for us all. So this, this is part of God's plan. This is God's initiative. This is God's work. He is accomplishing what He has set out to do. This is His purpose. Jesus is telling His disciples His plans. He is opening up His playbook and letting His disciples know what is about to happen. He did not come to be served, but to serve, but to lay down His life for us all. J.C. Ryle says that Jesus would have us know that His death was the great end, the great end for which He came into the world. It was not part of the plan. It was the plan. He would remind us that by that death, the great problem was to be solved. How God could be just and yet justify sinners. He did not come upon earth merely to teach and preach and work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by His own blood and suffering on the cross. Let us never forget this. 
the incarnation and example and words of Christ are all of deep importance. But the grand object which demands our notice in the history of His earthly ministry is His death on Calvary. The disciples saw the miracles. They witnessed His power. They saw the authority with which He speaked. And their expectation was that He was going to display His glory and His greatness in triumph over His enemies. But He is showing them that greatness in the eyes of the Lord looks different. It is seen in sacrificial service. But the disciples weren't getting it. They did not understand. It was unthinkable that this one that they had given their lives to follow, their champion, their king, their Messiah, it was unthinkable that he would be in the hands of men and suffer and die, and that he would go willingly They knew that He could command legions of angels, but that He would submit to human courts. Their hearts were not prepared to sacrifice. They weren't looking for ways to serve. No, they were focused on another mission. Their hearts were hoping for something else, which brings us to our second point, the path of true greatness. Verses 33 to 37. So Jesus drops this news on them, and they don't get it. And so (laughs) they simply continue on. He has time. And when they arrive at a house in Capernaum, they get there, and Jesus observes that they were having quite the discussion along the way. He noticed that it was heated, and he is going to use this moment to teach them something profound, something that would change their lives, something that would alter their understanding. So they get to this house, they walk inside, you can imagine they they drop their packs, and before they have a chance to sit down, Jesus turns to them and says, hey guys, what, what were you discussing on the way? Now you know that Jesus is not seeking information here, and they, well, they, they kept silent. They, they knew in this moment, okay, wait a second, this feels wrong. Their consciences condemned them. This was one of their less foolish moments. They knew that they had been caught Here, Jesus was speaking soberly. You can imagine tears in his eyes passionately, intensely telling them, brothers, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and I'm going to die. (laughs) And here they are arguing about which of us is the greatest. I am. No, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. This is appalling. 
This would be appalling if it happened the first time, but it's even more appalling knowing that Jesus had already told them this and that He had called them to deny themselves and to take up their cross. He had told them that they must lose their life for His sake. James Edwards says, in all three passion predictions in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks of the necessity of His rejection, suffering, and death. And following all three, the disciples voiced their ambition for status and prestige. That's what they were after. Jesus speaks of surrendering His life. The, disp- the disciples speak of fulfilling theirs. He had told them that they must die to their quest for personal fulfillment, their pursuit of personal glory. They must abandon their desire to build their personal kingdom and instead live for His. And so here they are, likely provoked by the fact that Peter and James and John had just been handpicked by Jesus into an inner circle, and they were all arguing about which of them was the greatest. You can imagine Andrew, the brother of Peter. He's like, wait a second, you got James and John, they're brothers, why is my brother get to go and not me? And you can imagine Peter saying, well, I'm the greatest, clearly. And James and John, also known as the sons of thunder, were speaking in a thunderous voice, no, no, we are. And then they look at one another, I am. They were arguing, who is the greatest in this context? This is shocking. We should feel the shock of this moment as we see, as we are outside looking in, we should see that this is an appalling moment. As shocking as this is, however, this is simply a picture. It's a picture of why the cross is so necessary. These guys walked with Him. They spoke with Him. They heard more of His teaching directly than anyone else. They saw His demeanor. They saw His humility. They saw the way that He gave Himself for others continuously. But this is what happens. Sin affects us. It blinds us, all of us, and makes us so self-focused. Here, Jesus is telling those who knew Him best about His pending death, and they turn it into a conversation about themselves. You ever do that? You hear somebody talking, sharing a story, and, and you immediately try to connect it to yourself. You immediately say, well, well, that, well let me tell you about me. That's, that's what the disciples are doing here. They want it to be a me-focused conversation rather than a Christ-focused conversation. Sin fills them, and it fills us with a desire for our own greatness. All of a sudden, these disciples and we are at the center of the universe. All things revolve around us. Everything relates to us in some way. Sin causes us to forget, to, to forget God and to forget the reason that we were given breath in the first place and to put ourselves at the center of the universe. You and I do this every day. It's not just the disciples. It's not just them in this moment. You know, it's a dangerous thing when we read the Scriptures and we come across a moment like this and we just shake our head and, and think, what a bunch of clowns. Because the truth is that <laughs> I, I know if, if I was there in that moment, I'd be doing the same thing. 
I can relate. We can all relate. I have no doubt that I would be right there with them handing over the receipts for why I was the greatest, how hard I worked. I was more deserving. Doesn't anybody notice me? Well, Jesus, Jesus hears their silence, and so he, he simply sits down and calls them over. Imagine this moment. I mean, imagine, put yourself there. Okay, you see Jesus talking about his death. You see that his disciples selfishly, pridefully, arrogantly arguing about who is the greatest, and, and Jesus calls them on it. How would you react? I mean, certainly you'd roll your eyes. Maybe you'd knock them on the head. Jesus says, okay, guys, let's, let's sit down over here. Come on, come on over here. Sit down. He's patient. He's gentle. He knows that they are but dust, like us. Can you imagine a more patient and gentle teacher? Don't miss the gentle care that he displays here. He simply calls them over to talk it over with them and help them understand. He doesn't use guilt or shame. He just invites them over. Brothers, sit down. And he says very simply, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is a paradox, but Jesus used this rhetorical act, tool over and over again. He said, if you want to live, you have to die. If you want to save your life, you must lose your life. If you want to be great, you must suffer. If you want to be first, you shall be last. The way to greatness is the way of service. If you want to be great, you have to be the greatest servants of all. You see, Jesus is here reversing the values of the world. He shows them and He teaches them that greatness is not about power. It's not about prestige. It's not about position. It's not about possessions. It's not about security. It's not about your performance. It's not about who answers to you or anything else that this world celebrates. Greatness he says, in the eyes of the Savior, isn't about the things that you've done and the accomplishments you have achieved. That is not greatness. Rather, he says, the path of greatness is the path of service. You must be servants of all. Greatness in the economy of God begins by denying oneself, by preferring others, by serving others everyone. Greatness begins by recognizing that we are called to live for God's kingdom rather than our own kingdom. We want God to be at the center. We want His will to be done. We want His glory to be seen. But that's not how we live. Every day we have to die to that desire for our own greatness. I only have to think about the last few days to see how I've been trying to push forward my own agenda, whether it's in moments of personal fulfillment or, or little grabs of glory that I put forward here and there. What about you? 
is the way that you relate to your spouse such that seeks the glory of God or your own glory? How about the way that you relate to your children? The way that you relate to the waiter at the restaurant? Do you want your neighbors to begin to see God for who He is and does that affect the way that you relate to them? Do you use your possessions and your money, your time, and your energy for His glory? Are you living as a servant or are you living as a king? You see, all too often I can relate to the disciples here because I put myself first. It is hard to die to yourself. It is painful to put others' needs ahead of my own. But this is what the Lord calls us to. He doesn't only call us to it, but He models it for us. The path to greatness is the path of service. And the service that we are to render is to be given to all. This means that we must abandon our self-focus. This means that we have to give up our self-centeredness. It means that we must crucify the pride that thinks so much of ourselves. Now, don't misunderstand me. The call to humility is not the call to self-loathing. C.S. Lewis famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's a category of what another author calls self-forgetfulness. D. Edmund Hebert in his commentary said, this term, the, the term servant of all, has reference to the service being rendered rather than to the servile status of the one rendering it. True humility is not self-depreciation and humiliation, but an attitude of unselfishness and self-forgetfulness, which seeks the welfare of others. Humility and service are not only the passport to greatness in Christ's kingdom, but also the very essence of greatness in His kingdom. Jesus displayed this in a way that should forever shape our hearts and lives. And here He offers to set you and I free from this idolatrous and joy-robbing preoccupation with ourselves. Jesus moves beyond simple teaching. And with His disciples in the room, He provides a flesh and blood illustration of what He's trying to teach them. He calls over a child. Look at verse 36. He calls over a child and puts him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, what is Jesus doing here? What? What is he saying? What does this child represent? While in other passages we are called to be like children, here the child is not our example. You see, children in that day and age were 
not always expected to live very long. It was a regular thing for children at a young age to die. And so they were generally not welcomed in and, and hearts entwined until a later age. They were seen as insignificant. This child has no power. He has no position. This child has nothing that he can offer them. But this child has inherent value because he is created in the image of God. And so in receiving this child, in loving this child, in serving this child, what you have to see, what you have to recognize, is there is nothing in it for the disciples. There is nothing in it for you and me. That is what Jesus is teaching them, and that is true greatness. Jonathan Edwards said that none are so low, none are so inferior, but Christ's condescension is sufficient to take a gracious notice of them. Those that are commonly despised by their fellow creatures, Christ does not despise that's true for you and me. You who wonder if anyone takes notice. You who wonder, do I have worth? You who wonder, does anyone see me? Christ sees. He values. He loves. He welcomes. He receives. How can we do anything else in return? especially for those whom the world does not esteem, those who have bring no significant bearing of importance in our lives. When you do that, when you welcome others, when you receive others, when you serve others, you serve those who can offer you nothing in return, you get what the kingdom of God is all about. When the truth that Jesus teaches elsewhere about not loving, or about loving those, not just those who love you, but even your enemies, when you get that, you get why Christ came. You get why the Father sent Him. What did we have to offer Him? Jesus did not rescue us because we have some value that we can add to what He is lacking. He was lacking nothing. That is why the Father sent Him. You can't serve that child or welcome that individual for any reason to promote yourself. When we receive that child, Jesus says we receive Jesus, and not only Jesus, but the Father Himself. Can there be any greater motivation to have this posture? Can there be any greater motivation to self-forgetfulness and serving one another to welcome the outcast, the sojourner? the downtrodden, the messy. Can there be any greater motivation to deny yourself but to know that in doing so, you get God? When you're there, you know that your heart has been changed by God's grace. Listen, this, this passage confronts all of us with our heart's personal desires for personal greatness. For sinners, others-oriented servanthood is not our primary disposition. We don't go around seeking to forget ourselves. We go around seeking to fill ourselves. We go around thinking, what do I want to do today? What is going to be fulfilling in the way that I spend my time? That's what I do. I struggle with this every day. This posture that Jesus calls us to, to be last of all, 
and servant of all is counterintuitive. But he says it's the path to greatness. He doesn't say, don't aim to be great. He says, this is how you become great. You have to choose to be last, to be counted as a servant of all. I've heard it said that everyone likes the idea of being thought of as a servant until you're treated as a servant. And then inside you say, wait, this isn't how this works. You should be commending me right now. You should be celebrating me right now. Instead, we're treated like Jesus was treated. And we bucket that. That's when it gets hard, but that is the path that Jesus blazed. So I want to invite you this morning to acknowledge that difficulty, to confess that inability. Let's confess that we don't have that in us, and let's look to the cross again. The cross where Jesus gave Himself for us all. He died for our pride. He gave Himself up for our sin. He did this knowing how the disciples would abandon Him right away. He did all of this knowing of your sin in advance. And He bled and died for you and I. He gave Himself up for our sin and denied Himself to give us grace. And it's only by that grace that we can find joy in being last. It's only by His grace that we can delight in living a life of serving others. It is only by grace. J.C. Ryle again said, The man who lays himself out most to serve his fellow men and to be useful in his day and generation He is the greatest man in the eyes of Christ. Their work may often be hard and discouraging. They may be mocked, ridiculed, and held up to scorn by the world. But let them know that the Son of God marks all they do, and He is well pleased. Whatever the world may think, these are they whom Jesus will delight to honor at the last day. Don't you want to be among them? Do you want to be counted great? This, Jesus says, this is the path. So as we close, I want to encourage you to work hard at this category of self-forgetfulness, to give yourself to a life of sacrificial servanthood, of not putting yourself first, I want to encourage you to look at those in your life and consider how do I die to myself in this relationship, in this situation. I want to encourage you to choose to be last of all and servant of all. But even more than that, I want to encourage you to allow this to happen as you fix your gaze on the cross of Christ. Jesus did not simply demand hard things of His disciples But he demonstrated what a life of others-oriented, sacrificial servanthood looks like. He chose to be counted as nothing. He took the form of a servant. He put himself on the cross that we deserved, that he might pay our penalty so that we would never have to. So look to the cross, brothers and sisters. Commit now to spend time this week, spend time this afternoon, Get alone and contemplate the sacrificial servanthood of the Savior on your behalf. 
consider how unlike all of us He is. And let that cultivate a heart of worship. Lose yourself in awe and wonder. Do this slowly. Do this repeatedly. Don't rush this. Consider how He did not serve those who would benefit Him in some way, but He came to serve those like you and I who could offer nothing in return but our worship and our thanksgiving. Let this picture of true greatness affect you. Let it stir your affections and cultivate a fresh sense of worship at the majesty of the cross of Christ where our Savior bled, where He died in service to you and I. And then, in response to that, ask the Lord to help you to lay down your desire for self-acclaim, to seek to live your life in service to others, knowing that in doing so, you're bringing joy to the saved. You're displaying the beauty of a life lived for the glory of God. You achieve a level of greatness unmatched by any reward this world could ever offer you, and you, you will be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. The Father Himself saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus' words in Mark chapter 9 should be a huge antidote to the inclination for us to walk with a swagger. Instead, we take up our cross, and in doing so, we radiate the glory of Jesus Christ in a dark and dying world. The path of greatness is the path of service. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you shape us through your word by the power of your spirit, incrementally but steadfastly, increasingly, progressively more like your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father. Your word says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that by beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to another. And I pray that you would do that work, Father, by fixing our gaze upon the cross. Help us, Lord, to look at that cross, to behold the glory of our Savior, to consider your steadfast love and your mercy toward us, your everlasting patience. And let it melt our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would encourage our souls this morning and lift our gaze to see greatness and glory ahead by following the way of Jesus, by choosing the path of service. We pray this, Father, in the name of Jesus. Jesus.